Whitlam Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. My name is Leanne Smith and I'm director of the Whitlam Institute. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Darug people of the Darug Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and express the Whitlam Institute's support for the Uluru Statement of the Heart. This podcast series was produced under our policy theme, Australia in the World. And this particular podcast series, The Future of Australian Foreign Policy Toward Afghanistan Post-Military Withdrawal, Afghan Perspectives, was designed as a series of conversations with Afghan political, academic and community leaders. It was intended for an audience of Australian policymakers as well as the general community with an interest in Afghanistan and Australia's role there. In light of the recent military withdrawal of US, Australian and other international forces from Afghanistan, and as the Taliban has continued to gain control of territory and attack communities across the country, the Institute seeks to raise awareness in Australia and beyond of the situation in Afghanistan today. We are grateful that several Afghan experts in Afghanistan, New York and here in Australia have been part of this production. There's an important conversation to be had here about Australia's moral responsibility to continue to support the Afghan people as they face this terrible new reality. What are Afghans across the country, and particularly vulnerable ethnic groups, facing today? How are women's rights being affected? What do Afghans seek from the international community to support them? And how can Australia be a part of that international effort? So I'm really excited to be speaking this afternoon with Farhonda Akbari. She is currently a PhD candidate at the ANU and she specialises in international relations, particularly diplomacy and Afghan politics. Farhonda is interestingly writing her PhD around the prospect of peace processes with non-state actors, so the viability of making peace in these contexts. Farhonda is originally from Daikundi province in central Afghanistan. She came to Australia in 2003 as a 12 and a half year old girl um, as a refugee transiting through Pakistan and Iran before coming to Australia. She's based in Melbourne and I'm so delighted that she's here to speak with us today. So Fahonda, I thought I'd start out by just asking you if you're comfortable to tell us a little bit, a bit about your journey to Australia and, and why you had to leave home. Thank you, Leanne. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you um, and through you to a larger audience um, in Australia and, and, and the world. My journey is traced back to my family's journey. The, 23, the 43 years of conflict have impacted uh, my family as well in far villages of Afghanistan and in, in central Afghanistan. So there are different phases of migration um, from our home village in Daikundi, starting from um, mid-1980s, mid-1990s, and then around 2003. So different parts of my family have been living in Afghanistan at different phases. Um, I myself have been growing up in Pakistan as a child, uh, as a refugee child, and then in Iran, and then came to Australia when I was 12 and a half years old. And it's also when I started my formal schooling for the first time. 
I went to year, I was accepted in year eight because by then I was, uh, after uh, completing my six months of English classes, I was then 13 year old and for 13 year old, I had to be set in year eight. And that was the first time that I was admitted to a formal schooling. And uh, since then, Australia has been home. I have my siblings and my family here, my immediate family here. But of course, I have family and relatives all over Afghanistan um, in, in major cities, as well as in Daikundi province, but also around the world as they have been migrating um, as a result of war. But I've been um, going back to Afghanistan uh, since 2010, once I turned 18 and I could travel on my own. I was not able to convince my mom, but I did uh, get some support to be able to go back to Afghanistan. First time was in 2010, and then I went back in 2012 for a longer period to work. Um, I volunteered to work for the um, Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission. And then a last couple of years, um, I've been going back more frequently for my PhD research mm. um, to collect fieldwork data. That's fantastic. And Tarkonda, you mentioned that you started this PhD research around the prospects of peace processes with non-state actors back in 2017, before what we're seeing now in Afghanistan started unfolding. Can you give us your perspective then on how you see the situation unfolding in Afghanistan today? Looking at uh, how event unfolded so quickly towards, unfortunately, towards the uh, negative indicators um, was uh, a result of the peace, the so-called peace process, because um, the conditions were not right for it. Yes, we did reach um, a military stalemate for the Afghanistan war to be settled uh, politically uh, once it was failed militarily. But there are certain conditions that have to be met um, before such prospects for peace give us uh, those positive results. Because overnight, if you call stop the war, go to peace, it doesn't work that way. It's more about how those indicators are uh, prepared. Um, the situation is conditioned. And here in Afghanistan, it is. It it is very complex. It's multi-layered. It's not just the Taliban and the government or the Taliban or the US. We have um, local actors, we have national actors, regional actors, international actors, NGOs. Strategically, Afghanistan is situationed or placed in a in a very sensitive uh, regional neighborhood. Uh, we have Pakistan and India, and then we have China, and then we have Russia. So all of these have had, um, the, all of these big countries or actors have a say in however the situation unfolded in, in Afghanistan. When the US government decided to start direct negotiation or diplomatic engagement with the Taliban, they, neglected and abandoned the Afghan government who was a party to the conflict and also the elected representative of the of the Afghan people and that itself uh, yes it did allow by abandoning the government, it did allow the US and the Taliban to sit together and progress the talks because previous attempts have had failed. 
um, for, for the conditions that Taliban had set, which was that um, the Afghan government should not be included. But, but the fact the way it was handled and, and the US to accept the Taliban's condition without receiving anything in return for that, it demoralized the people of Afghanistan. It demoralized uh, the security forces. And also it sent the wrong signal in the region and to the Taliban fighters on the ground that, um, yeah, what you are calling is accepted. We can neglect the government um, by extension, the people of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And here, um, that's why we are seeing the situation we are in today. The international community have been intervening in this instance over this period since 2001 in the internal affairs of Afghanistan. And, and under the purported purpose of nation building, helping to rebuild the structures and the institutions um, of the Afghan government and the society. So it is very interesting, this point you make about how these peace negotiations were between the US and the Taliban, and as you describe it, abandoning the government, and I would say the Afghan people as well, in favour of this peace process, which to some people honestly just looked like an exit strategy, a military exit strategy. What do you think has been the contribution of the international community over these some 20 years of that nation building project and will they be sustained or not in the current context? Um, look, the, there has been many uh, failures we are witnessing visually these days, especially in the last three months. But I think to zoom out and look at the whole situation in the country, the gain that were made in the last 20 years, we cannot abandon it or just say that it has failed. But to recognize those gains, um, uh, 20 years was a space for the Afghan people to be able to breathe. 20 years was a space for more than 3 million Afghan schools, students and child uh, were able to go to school. Um, 20 years was yeah, uh, was a space for Afghan women uh, to be able to um, uh, to claim their presence and impose their rights. Um, there has been a lot of a struggle, but these things do take time. We cannot expect that the mandate that was set for nation building or state building in Afghanistan, um, it would be done in that short period of time. Uh, it takes many, many decades in other countries to gain the right to vote for women but in Afghanistan, we have more than a quarter of women in parliament. I mean, yes, some, some of these gains are symbolic. Um, uh, some of these gains are things on the paper and just ticked um, uh, to be able to receive the fund from the international donors. But at the same time, um, uh, human rights and women rights and equality of all ethnic group were recognized under the constitution. Uh, they were they were repeatedly said in public spaces, and I think these are the gain that we can be proud of. But the criticism is that all these investment, um, financial and human investment in Afghanistan could have been better if things were handled more responsibly. Here I am uh, pointing my finger to the international community, especially to the U.S., but also to the Afghan politician and to the actors inside Afghanistan, because 
of high level of corruption. They did not let those water, you know, to be come to come down to the grounds of Afghanistan, so everybody could benefit from it. And those corruption that money were stolen from our all budgets and um, just to fill certain people's pockets in elite positions and self-serving politicians. So these are the criticism, but I think um, today that the Afghan people are left uh, bare and naked to fight the Taliban on their own. We are seeing this strong sense of resistance. This is again of the last 20 years that the, these people have been exposed to rights, to liberty, a taste of democracy that um, they, they cannot accept the Taliban um, to rule over them. And, and you hear this not from me here sitting in Canberra, but from Afghan people of all ages um, across Afghanistan. How do you think the international community can support ordinary Afghans today in the context of this military withdrawal? If there's no going back to that, what can the international community do to support people? Look, around the U.S.'s decision for unconditional, uh, unconditional decision for withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan, knowing that the Taliban have not committed to the Doha agreement, um, the international community, along with the U.S., made some very, very um, unforgivable mistakes in the last three months, especially. Firstly, their neutrality towards the situation in Afghanistan. We have seen the international community, including officials from the UN and, and representative of the states that are in Afghanistan, um, claiming that uh, or, or saying that it is up to the Afghan people to, to decide for their future. It means that ordinary people who have given their life to go and vote, they have, their fingers have been chopped to be able to go and vote. They have heard all sort of things from the communities but they still sent their daughter to school. What message do you send to them when you tell them that it's up to the Afghan people to decide their future? And that automatically means that now the Taliban is coming, they're taking over. It's up to you guys to decide what you wanna do with it. That means that we don't have any sort of moral support let alone resource support, but moral support from the international community. As the international community, we have our own obligation to take principled position. Here, we do not mean just to pour dollars in Afghanistan, but at least in your statements, at least in the position that you're taking, take a principled position and still talk about human rights and democracy for Afghanistan, because that's what the majority of Afghan people want. And now we know it's a war, the war in Afghanistan, it's a war of, it's a proxy war, it's a war of certain extent an ideology that people does not believe in it. And it's also other countries um, using it for their own political benefits. But what is the, what about the Afghan people? And here, um, international community have to side with the people of Afghanistan. And by siding with human rights, you're not taking a political position. This is your principled human position. That was the most heartbreaking reality that the Afghan people came face to face. 
last uh, few weeks, especially as we see atrocities unfolding um, dramatically across Afghanistan, there has been some sort of firmer position in support of calling out the perpetrators of those atrocities and sort of siding with the Afghan people, um, which is a, a welcome gesture. And I hope they do take those firm position. That's number one. Um, don't take a neutral position toward the situation in Afghanistan, but take a principled position. And the other ways the international community can help is use whatever is there in their leverage to be able to shape the, and influence the Afghan conflict. And, and, and by extension, the peace process. Uh, international community um, have sort of state sideway and then just looking at how things are going on the UN especially now that the US have absolutely no appetite to engage in Afghanistan in fulfilling its responsibility post withdrawal but the UN has a much more critical critical role um, to be able to follow up on some actions mm -hmm. and that way you do send a very strong signal to the Taliban because now um, what we know, the Taliban are emboldened, um, they come victorious, um, they purge across the country and say that we have defeated the superpower, they cannot do anything, and here we are with our, with our rules um, in Afghanistan, and it includes uh, whatever harsh ways that they have, but sending a strong signal to the Taliban that what they do is unacceptable. It does not have to be a military answer, you know, but about diplomatic leverage that the international community has. And I think that that needs to be said much more clearly. There has been a lot of mixed signaling by different countries. Some say, yeah, we engage with Taliban if they do not violate human rights to a large extent. So that means a minimum extent is fine with them. So I think that clarity on the international community's extent against the Taliban is another thing that the international community can do. And that's what the people of Afghanistan expect. It's very realistic um, demand or request. And we, we do understand the international context of they want to engage or not engage further. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And that was Farakonde Akbari, PhD student at the ANU, focusing on the viability of peace processes with non-state actors, particularly here in the context of the Taliban. Please join us for our next podcast, which will be with Dr. Nyamatullah Ibrahimi, lecturer in international relations at La Trobe University, and will be speaking as the international community contemplates how to move forward with the Taliban now in place in Kabul. And to quote from Yamatullah himself, the idea that the promise of a changed Taliban is a delusion. I look forward to having you join us to hear what he has to say.